0: Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown, a look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. Our program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing creation of their own public banks. At publicbankingassociates.com. Greetings once again. This is Walt McCree, Senior Advisor to the Public Banking Institute and Ellen's co-host. Today we're bringing you a very special presentation about America's only public bank, the Bank of North Dakota. Straight from the man who's just completed running the bank for over 20 years, Eric Hardmeyer will give us a synoptic view of the bank's reasons for success and the main points that people should know who are working to replicate that success in their own cities and states around the country. We're grateful to the California Public Banking Alliance for sharing this presentation, which they presented earlier this month. Later in the program, Ellen will be speaking with Braxton Brewington of The Debt Collective, a remarkable group that has paid off thousands of debts for students and others who struggle under the growing onerous affliction of financial debt, which characterizes the lives of most Americans. But we start right away with Eric Hardmeyer as he describes how the Bank of North Dakota fits into that state's community.
1: We like to call uh, the Bank of North Dakota is the Bank of Good for the state of North Dakota. First, I think it's a little uh, important that I, I give you a little more color on the history of the Bank of North Dakota, why it was started, where it stands today with mission and financial strength. I want to talk a little bit about how public banks can benefit government. And I, I think it's important for you to realize that when when we talk about the Bank of North Dakota, of course, we are the bank for the state of North Dakota. So we cover every square inch of uh, the state of North Dakota, as you all know, it's, it's not a large state. It's a population of 850,000 uh, folks. And, you know, there's two degrees of separation between, uh, you know, all of North Dakota. So uh, we all know each other. We all know the politicians. Um, and that, of course, is one of the reasons why uh, things work as well as they do. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the way the bank is structured a partnership approach rather than a competitor approach with the private sector, why I think that is important and why it is really a hallmark of one of the founding principles of the Bank of North Dakota, which, which I will get into in a bit as well. I'd like to talk about how uh, the Bank of North Dakota is organized to solve financial problems. And I, and I would say it isn't just problems that we're looking uh, to do to solve, but, but opportunities Um, So looking forward, looking ahead, uh, not just looking in the rearview mirror, but what what's coming in front of us that we need to get out in front of um, and and be proactive. So that's one of our our, uh, mantras at Bank of North Dakota was to be proactive, not reactive. And, you know, if time permits, uh, I would like to answer some frequently asked questions that I get every one of the the states that have been talked about um, in terms of uh, moving forward with public banking i've talked to i've been to new york several times i've been to new jersey Um, i've talked to virtually every state or state official um, in 30 to 40 states who have uh, brought up this concept so uh, i'll just tell you that this became um, you know, part of the national consciousness, this public bank, I would say, after 2008. um, Of course, the Great Recession uh, had everybody looking at the banking sector, wondering what could they possibly be thinking about? They are jeopardizing, uh, you know, their own institutions, their shareholders. um, And, uh, of course, the state of North Dakota skated by the uh, 2008 uh, Great Recession. And in fact, we flourished. Um, And a lot of credit was given to the Bank of North Dakota, I would argue that that probably not accurate, it's erroneous. We did have, you know, a a piece in it, certainly, but we were not the primary reason that the state of North Dakota did not go through the recession. Um, We happened to be at the time developing a, a very large energy play um, that that helped us uh, get beyond all of the issues that you saw and, and secondly I would say the, the other reason why we skated by is by our nature North Dakotans are very um, cautious conservative uh, we at the bank uh, although we run a you know a progressive bank um, you know, believe in the Warren Buffett rule of management is that if we don't understand it, we're not going to do it. So, you know, we didn't step uh, into the large uh, derivative uh, issues that other banks did. We stayed away from private label mortgage-backed securities, um, never wanted to jeopardize taxpayer dollars. So we completely stayed away from those issues uh, that Plagued the rest of the country. We had no bank defaults in North Dakota, zero. I think we're one of just a few states that can that can say that. So, so let me begin a little bit with uh, a little bit of history on on the bank, um, and I'll try to be brief. But um, you know, it would be important for me to tell you that if this initiative were to start in North Dakota today, uh, many of you probably know this. North Dakota is a very red state. Um, and as David said, I am you know, proud to be a uh, get along with both parties, uh, although the Republican party dominates to a significant degree in the state of North Dakota, um, but I've always uh, thought of myself as a centrist, uh, you know, able to work with, with both sides. Um, so our, our history goes back 102 years ago uh, right after uh, the First World War, uh, right after, of course, the, the Spanish flu. Um, and there was a, a, a very angry agrarian movement, a revolt, um, if you will, by North Dakota farmers led by a very charismatic socialist by the name of A.C. Townley, uh, who took it upon himself to rally you know, the, the, the troops. And, and uh, at the time, they were the the farming community was upset with uh, what they felt were all of the the decisions were out of our hands by out of state interests, including commodity prices, um, opportunities for financing, high interest rates. So everything was controlled by the big money center banks in New York, Chicago, uh, uh, Minneapolis. Of course, all the big uh, Millers and elevators were in Minneapolis, all taking advantage of North Dakota farmers. Um, and so, this this uh, very charismatic man um, rallied the troops, created a, a new party, a new uh, um, party in the state of North Dakota called the Nonpartisan League, took control of the legislature. Was called the Industrial Program, which solved. You know, all of the issues the farmers had, they created the state mill and elevator, which is still running today and is the largest mill and elevator in the country. Um, they also, at the time, created the Bank of North Dakota to serve North Dakotans, to help them with issues um, and gave us, you know, the, the founding principles Um And I will tell you that the beginning of of the history of the Bank of North Dakota was tumultuous, to say the least. Um, There was an initiated measure almost immediately um, to halt the operations of the bank. There was a recall of the uh, entire Industrial Commission, which is made up of the governor, the attorney general, and the A commissioner. That was successful. However, you know the bank continued to survive because the people of North Dakota saw the benefit of a public bank, what it could do for the betterment of the state of North Dakota. Um, I, I can fast forward to really the 1960s is where the Bank of North Dakota first entered into um, the economic development and finance business. And that really is our primary emphasis today although we still have a large ag uh, background. Um, uh, but primarily we are all about diversifying our North Dakota economy. So I, I briefly touched on these founding principles and I, 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 I wanna mention uh, four of them because I think they're important. Um, they're very important for the state of North Dakota. And I think as you think about these um, for your own you know, public banking uh, initiatives, These are something that you'd want to think about as well. And so these were written in 1919. So keep that in mind as you think about these. But the first one, and and I I can't tell you how important this one is, um, but is to fix in the minds of our citizens the exact purpose and scope of the bank's activities. So what are you trying to solve? what is not being done by the private sector that needs to be done to make in our case north dakota better in your case your municipality better i think that is just incredibly important that you bring your citizens along that they understand what purpose it is that you are trying to serve what are you trying to solve by doing this and in our case uh, they gave us our mission statement and and we use it today. It's to encourage and promote agriculture, commerce, and industry. That's a large mission statement, which gives us a lot of flexibility in terms of where we want to go, what we want to do with this bank. The third uh, principle, and, and you know, I've heard a little bit of uh, backlash against you know the banking community. Understand it, uh, but for us, uh, in our mission principles, it states very clearly to be helpful and to assist in the development of financial institutions and public corporations within the state and not in any manner to destroy or to be harmful to existing financial institutions. And I'm going to talk quite a bit about that uh, a little bit later. And then, of course, the, the, the last one is to redeposit in the state uh, all the public funds, and I can tell you that all uh, North Dakota taxes, fees that are collected, are all by law deposited at the Bank of North Dakota. So we we uh, have a very large captive deposit base. And at uh, at the uh, early days of the Bank of North Dakota, all municipal deposits were also legally be required uh, to be held at the bank and through an initiated measure in the thirties um, that was stopped and, and municipalities are free to deposit wherever they choose to. So let me, uh, let me continue on now with, with how, uh, how can public banks benefit government finance? I've heard that brought up before. Um, and in your case, how can that help uh, municipal government? And and I could tell you uh, a number of ways that we do that in North Dakota. So we have a relationship with virtually every state agency. And we meet with them periodically. We understand their cash flow needs. We provide uh, lines of credit to state agencies making them, um, and they all have the authority to borrow from us. So it's not necessary for them to go to uh, state government to fund uh, certain critical issues. BND can do that without a, uh, a legislative uh, um, bill being passed. We provide funding for special state projects using uh, state general fund money to pay us back. So we will make loans for... And I can tell you right now, uh, you know, a couple of cases where we will fund uh, the housing incentive fund and uh, put money into the housing incentive fund, the legislature will come back in two years and pay us back for that investment. Uh, we provide market rate deposit relationships with state agencies. So they get a market rate on their deposit. So we're not... Uh, you know, providing lower than market rates, they get exactly what the market dictates. Uh, Also, we have a a distribution of dividends. Now, I've heard others speak uh, earlier about, you know, profits going back to shareholders. Um, I would have a different opinion than that. I think profits are important. Um, uh, In in our case, certainly um, they are. Uh, the Bank of North Dakota uh, today is about a $10 billion bank. When I took over as president in 2000, we were about a $1.6 billion bank, earning $30 million a year. Uh, today, we're earning over $170 million a year. At one point, uh, John Hovind, who was my predecessor, now is, became governor and now is a senator, Um, um they were taking uh, $30 million a year uh, in a in dividend to help fund general fund expenditures. And we were at at one point the fifth or sixth largest revenue source back to the state. Now, you know, that, that's, again, the Bank of North Dakota and our relationship with the state. And it may be completely different from what you're thinking. But, you know, I will tell you that, you know, profitability is important, um, both from a regulator standpoint and, and also to fund growth. Um, unless you are continuing um, with capital draws and capital uh, uh, raises to bring money into your bank, you know, in our case, we raise capital through the retention of earnings. Uh, and today, a $10 billion bank, we have, uh, you know, a billion dollars of capital. That has all been done through retention of earnings, Um, and that has, in years past, um, acted as a a budget stabilization tool. When we've got in trouble uh, financially, whether a severe economic downturn, the state has turned to us and said, can we have a special dividend? And we just did that in 2015, we provided a special dividend of $100 million to the state to help balance our budgets. We also uh, use our our, uh, our capital to develop programs that we don't want to carry on our balance sheet. These would be, you know, venture capital programs, uh, low-rate disaster programs. Uh, David mentioned that You know, in in my tenure uh, at the bank, we've gone through many different uh, cycles of boom and bust, agriculture, energy, and as we've gone through it, uh, flooding. Also, we we have provided uh, low-rate disaster programs that we have taken those loans off of our balance sheet because they are so low that they would distort um, the bank's uh, ratios, but we, we, we do those but we take them off balance sheet. We're also a big funder of housing incentive funds. So all of the issues that you talk about that I've heard, um, we've addressed over the years. We have we have programs to address beginning startup, uh, beginning entrepreneur programs. We have venture capital programs. Uh, we have uh, programs that are meant to diversify uh communities um, uh, we call it the pace program it's a partnership in um, uh, assisting community enhancement and and so we we use the state um, buy down and we uh, match that with a local buy down and we buy the interest rate down on a loan to a business that is helping to diversify and create jobs and we will reduce that uh, Interest rate down from a market rate of say three or four down to one, for example. Um, You know, we are a bank that, um, you know, instead of backing away from a crisis, we run to the crisis Um, because we believe that that is what makes us different. That is what makes the bank different from the private sector. Uh, you know they have shareholders to protect. Um, we believe that it is our mission to help the state go forward, and sometimes that means you've got to jump into the crisis. You've got to be the firefighter going up the ladder, not running away and so that that's how I've always thought about the bank, and I know that's how uh, future leaders will think about the bank and i'm I'm going to give you an example of that. Um, you know, they, they've talked a little bit about um, the uh, energy boom and bust cycles in North Dakota. Um, prior to 2008, North Dakota was the ninth or tenth uh, oil producer in the nation. Uh, you know, they discovered how to frack oil. And, and I understand that, you know, um, I may be coming from a different viewpoint than you on fossil fuels, but it is an important part of our economy. Um but we've gone through several uh, boom and bust cycles uh, of oil, starting in the 50s, a second one in the 70s and 80s, and a third one, of course, now in 2008. But the, two, but the, uh, the one in 1970 and the bust in the early 80s uh, created havoc uh, in Western North Dakota. It, it happened, the bust happened so quickly It left, you know, cities uh, bankrupt. It left, you know, many empty buildings, storefronts, uh, cities with large debt obligations that it took years of restructuring to pay back. And so when the oil boom again started in 2008, 2009, what we saw was private sector banks absolutely scared to death of lending back into, you know, the, the, this big boom cycle, they had been burned on real estate. They had been burned on housing projects, retail, um, um, you name it. Uh, it. It was a debacle. But we, you know, we recognized at the state and at the bank that this oil play uh, in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, was different. It was using different technology. Um, certainly, the demand was there, and this thing then uh, vaulted the bank or the state of North Dakota from the eighth or ninth largest producer to the second, only behind Texas. Uh, and and you know, developing uh, somewhere around a million and a half barrels a day. Now I understand that New Mexico has uh, moved up to the second slot. North Dakota is number three. Uh, But anyway, you know, what we found is that those banks that were so afraid to lend was holding back, you know, the economic development of the region was holding back the development because there just simply wasn't housing. uh, And there wasn't, uh, you know, the financial institutions willing to come forward. And so, you know, I went up along with uh, other state officials met with the banks, met with the city, and said, how can we help? You know, this is a time where we are being called on to do something special. We have an extraordinary event occurring in the state. We've got an extraordinary bank. Let's do something extraordinary. So that's what we did. We came in and we said, all right, we're gonna help you banks. We're gonna take a big chunk of that risk off of your balance sheet. We're gonna come in and participate in the loans that you make, but we will buy 80 to 90% of that loan. You get to keep the relationship with the borrower, you sell us, the risk, we'll carry it. We did the same thing with a city of Willowston that um, was really struggling issuing bonds. Their bond rating had just simply gone to hell because of uh, all the problems from 15, 20 years ago so the Bank of North Dakota came in and provided a letter of credit to that bond issue, allowing them to sell bonds to do needed infrastructure that they would not have been able to do economically had we not used a letter of credit to, to dramatically drive down the price of that bond issue. So those, those are a couple of examples of how, um, you know, the, the Bank of North Dakota uh, w- was helpful. I do want to talk a little bit about this, the approach that we have to lending. And that is, you know, a partnership approach versus a competitive approach with respect to the private sector financial institutions. And it's important for me to talk just a little bit about the structure of the bank. And this may be an interesting concept for you, but the Bank of North Dakota is really set up as a banker's bank. We have very few direct to consumer products with a few notable exceptions of student loans, ag real estate, and some bank stock loans. This approach really allows the continuation of the borrower relationship with their principal bank. And and that bank then uses our our special programs i've mentioned a beginning entrepreneur program i've mentioned the pace program the match program Uh, there's a myriad of of programs that we have that touches each part of our economy and so those banks originate the deal they use the bank of north dakota Um, we come in we participate with them in the loan. The borrower um, continues to work with their local lender, Um, but the the big benefit, of course, in all this is leverage. So small banks, and and, and I will tell you that the Bank of North Dakota, I think, has been a uh, caveat, or uh, the, the panacea probably is a better word, in helping with the continuation of a very strong community banking system. Uh, those small banks, and, and you know, they range in size from, you know, hundred million to you know, the Wells Fargos are here, but the smaller banks are able to operate at a, at a size of the Bank of North Dakota. They can make a loan to a borrower, where they might have a lending limit, a legal lending limit, of five million dollars they can use our lending capacity, which is upwards of 150 million and combine those to uh, assist their borrower and keep their borrower instead of them having to leave and go to the next bigger bank, go to the Wells, go to the JP Morgans, they can keep them because uh, they have uh, the size and capacity with the bank. And so that leads to a very healthy uh, banking environment in the state Um, and and we believe that has been really uh, one of the most important things that we've done at at the bank of north dakota is to continue to facilitate and strengthen those ties between those you know community banks and the bank of north dakota it's it's a win-win we get to use their documentation Uh, they keep the relationship Um, all of the uh, loans that we do are tied together under a master participation agreement. Uh, So it's simple. We use technology uh, uh, as best we can to to make the transactions as smooth as possible. Um, And and so, uh, you know, it it really is, uh, I think the the thing that ties it all together. And of course we're active. We are out there. um, We have bankers in the field, calling on our banking customers, uh, trying to identify problems and opportunities. They come back to the bank and say, this this is what I'm hearing. These are the problems. These are the opportunities. And and we do something about it. I think that's what makes us different is that we're not waiting for somebody to tell us what to do. We're out there, you know, digging up, uh, lifting up the rocks. Where can we help? Um, and that, that's really how we, we, we think about things. How can we help the state be better? Um, you know, our, our relationship with the banks goes beyond just lending. Uh, we provide monthly education programs. And I, I can talk a little bit how we help with the PPP program. Newsletters, a very progressive website. Um, you know, uh, North Dakota got a lot of credit uh, on the PPP program. That, you know, on a per capita basis, we were out quicker, got more money out in the field uh, uh, per capita than anybody else. And um, the Bank of North Dakota was credited with, with helping. And I, I can tell you that we never made one PPP loan. Um, but what we did is because of our relationship with the banks, we were able to successfully bring together the banking community with the federal agencies delivering PPP. And the, the federal government figured out something that we have known for decades. And that is if you want to get money out into the field, use the banking system. It's quick. They know what they're doing. They know their customers. And we've been doing it for 100 years. Um and so we were able to link um, those banks through a, uh, a monthly education process that we've been doing for years. And we simply got SBA, FEMA, and all of the banks, you know, on the same page very quickly. We had upwards of 600 uh, participants in these calls. Um, and so we... we uh, we quickly, uh, North Dakota quickly came to the forefront. And, and I will just tell you that, you know, as we looked at, uh, you know, the COVID response uh, from the federal government, we at the bank actually were criticized a little bit in that we didn't come out with a program prior to PPP. Because typically we have, we've come out with disaster programs to help. But it has been my experience and our experience that when these types of disasters happen, um, and of course, nobody had ever seen anything like, you know, this COVID issue, but we in the state have seen, you know, disasters come and go, whether they're flooding in Minot, Fargo, um, ag disasters. So we, we had a blueprint on how this should work. And what we did is we sat back and said, where are the gaps? Who's missing out on PPP? You know, where, what businesses are not being uh, advantaged by the PPP? Um, and so we, we, we took our time. We went back out to the businesses and said, okay, here's the PPP program. What are you not getting? And they said, well, this is all great. This is all money to help us bring back our employees. But we need money for working capital going forward. So the Bank of North Dakota uh, drafted its own program that was meant to supplement PPP, not replace. it. We find no uh, interest in doing any of that. Why would we replace or compete with federal government programs? That that makes no sense. Their pockets are bigger, deeper. um, And when you looked at PPP, uh, there was the ability to uh, forgive the loans. I will say one more thing about, uh, I was asked to talk about student loans and I'll just make a a quick little pitch there. Um, The the Bank of North Dakota was actually the first bank in the nation to make a federally subsidized student loan. We did that in 1967. So we've been in the student loan business longer than anybody. Uh, We were the first bank to do a total refinance Of all student loans, we beat SoFi to that. So in North Dakota, if you are a North Dakota resident, you can package all of your student loan debt under one loan that the Bank of North Dakota will make at lower than market-driven rates. So it's a great retention tool. It's a great thing for our North Dakotans. And when COVID came uh, along, student loan borrowers were hurting. We lowered the interest rate even further for them. So, you know, we just have a lot of ability to make a difference every day for our uh, North Dakotans.
0: You've been listening to Eric Hardmeyer, former CEO of the Bank of North Dakota, taken from a presentation he did for the California Public Banking Alliance.
2: It's my pleasure to be speaking with Braxton Brewington, who is the Press Secretary of the Debt Collective. The Debt Collective is a national union for debtors and a leading activist organization uh, pressuring the president to abolish all student loan debt. So Braxton, great to be talking to you.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: so I guess you had a big win this week. You, you had it on April 4th. Um, you had a protest at the education department and they did indeed agree to extend the moratorium on student debt collection, which was supposed to be over on May 1st. But I know you're looking for more than that. So, you do, so do you want to tell us about your protests and how, how you pulled this off and what you really want?
3: Absolutely. So on April 4th, which was a Monday, we took to the Department of Education and sort of occupied the space outside of the building for several hours. We had a debtors' assembly where people shared their very vulnerable stories about student loan debt and how it's impacted their. Mental and financial well being. Um, then we had several, several accounts of radical joy. We had dancers, we had bands, we had all types of music and um, sound healing, and lots of folks coming from all around the country to sort of express themselves in a very jubilant way. And then we marched around the Department of Education, sort of in the style of. sort of biblical style of marching around the walls of Jericho. We had (laughs) the Vizellas where we blew horns, you know, the sound of the Jubilee until the walls collapsed. And they did. We won an extension to the pause um, just for a few more months. But of course, we're fighting for full student debt cancellation. So we've got more work to do. But for now, borrowers have absolutely saved billions of dollars um and they're being able to keep billions of dollars in their pockets for a few more months which is worth celebrating
2: yeah that's great congratulations well i want (laughs) to excuse me i want to talk more about that but first could you just tell us about the debt collective itself and what it does i know you don't just do student debt you do other types of debt and you so could you just and also maybe how you got into it or your own interests
3: Sure. The debt collective is modeled after a labor union. So just like workers can band together to fight for better working conditions or higher wages, we believe debtors have power, the financial uh, power of our debts, which we see as assets. We believe debtors can come together in a union and demand write downs, outright cancellations, entire transformations to our economy. So that's sort of our theory of change. And so we are running campaigns to eliminate all types of household debts that we deem illegitimate, credit cards, housing, student loan, medical debt, payday loans, carceral and immigration debt, all of these debts that either are public rights or debts that, you know, people are incurring because of their own incarceration. They're paying for their own incarceration. So we're working to eliminate all of those debts and make sure that people don't have to go into debt for their basic needs again. So that's the debt collective. And a a lot of ways that we try to do some conscious raising is actually by purchasing and erasing debt on our own. So you can buy debt on a very shady market where buyers and sellers sell debt for pennies on the dollar. So we've actually bought tens of millions of dollars worth of debt for a very, very cheap amount, maybe 2 or 3% of that, and erased it in an act of solidarity with student debtors, credit card hold debt holders, you know, probation debt, bail debt. We've erased it in solidarity with um, particularly the rise of the pandemic, which has exacerbated a lot of economic crises for various people. So, you know, we also buy and erase debt in a way to help people and to expose the phony morality of debt to show that this is extremely cheap, right? It doesn't cost very much. It isn't worth very much. And to show and to ask the question of who owes what to whom. It's sort of really makes people think well wait a minute if my debts are sold on a market for very cheap then why do I have to pay them so that's a, a bit about what the debt collective does but right now our, one of our biggest fights is student debt
2: yeah that's great and I know you do I, obviously collective is the best way to do it I mean clearly it has more impact than anything else but I know you do help people individually as well right to different forms and things that I mean, maybe you can just mention that for somebody that
3: might be. Yeah, we have um, several folks that come from all walks of life across the United States and other countries as well. People who are people who have actually don't have debt or who maybe have never been in debt and people who have. Hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt, or people who are working to get it canceled, librarians, social workers, teachers, professors, current students, people who dropped out because they couldn't afford to finish college. Um, we also partner with a lot of other labor unions and teachers' unions and really try to put the collective <laughs> in the debt collective. And, you know, we also are fighting for. You know, debt abolition, one of the things we say all the time is we don't we don't use the term forgiveness because we have nothing to be sorry for. We're fighting for <laughs> abolition. And so we you know, are also working pretty, pretty tough with other organizations, especially in California. That's where some of our presence is on working to eliminate carceral debt, the criminal punishment system, erasing prisons and harsh policing and work like that.
2: Yeah, uh, that's great. Yeah, I'm in California and our public banking movement also got, I mean, it didn't actually start with the Occupy Wall Street, but it definitely got a big push from Occupy Wall Street because many people, Occupy Wall Street pointed the finger at Wall Street. And so everybody, so the push was to divest from Wall Street. But then the question is, if you pull your money out of the wall street banks or if the big governments if the city governments pull their money out of wall street where do they put it <laughs> and you know we don't have local banks that are uh, capable of handling that sort of um, work and so that that was our you know the public banking push as well we need to form our own banks and then with yeah. our own banks and our own money or using our leveraging our money for the public, though. so that's what ours is about. So that's great, yeah. Um, okay, so um, I know that you're seeking to have loan, not just delayed, but actually student loans, not just delayed, but actually um, written off the books. So I assume that would just be the government debts, right? Because the private debts, you probably, I don't know, you probably legally have a problem there. Is that yeah. right?
3: Yeah, so about 94-95% of student debt is held by the federal government. So President Biden and his administration could eliminate that debt with an executive order because they're the creditor, they're the owner of that debt. The rest of it, you know, 5 or 7% are private student loans, which might require legislation. So we're pushing for that as well to eliminate private debt and we're going to need legislation to enact free college as well. So It's not just debt cancellation because we cancel all the student debt, we'll we'll just have a couple of billion the next semester. So we are pushing for free college legislation as well to make sure it's tuition free so that this never happens again. And we can return to higher education as a public good like it used to be in the United States just decades ago where people went to college for free or a very, very low fee or, you know, able to pay off their year's tuition with a couple of weeks working at a grocery store. Now we've very much gone away from that where the cost of college is rising eight times as fast as wages are and it's simply ballooned and is out of control.
2: Yeah, it's certainly doable to have free college or affordable college. I, I went to, I got my undergraduate degree in the 1960s in California, I graduated from, uh, Berkeley, university of California Berkeley and my whole 4 years was $6,000 and that included not just tuition but room and board I had a I went my junior year abroad in England all that for $6,000 <laughs> when you think about it it's pretty incredible but um <clears throat> so it can be done and the you know the government did that that was a, it's a government you know it was a public public university yeah Uh, And then you hear people, you get pushback, people say, well, how can we afford it? But then look at the money we're spending on war and we just upped the budget, the war budget, and they never have problems finding finding money for war. So they certainly, it certainly should be possible to (laughs) find the money for internal investment, which is actually going to help the economy overall. Do you want to talk about that?
3: That, that's absolutely right. We have a backwards value system where we prioritize war, militarism, and policing rather than education, healthcare, child care. We spend money on education, and but we call them loans when we could call them grants, right? So we could simply turn the loans into grants and say this is money that we're giving you so that you can have education. But instead, we make it a, a for-profit system where we commodify education and sentence individuals to a debt sentence based on whether they are a woman or black or brown, or simply don't come from a wealthy family or are a legacy admission. So we have the money. It's there. We spend it on things that we shouldn't, and we spend it in ways that we shouldn't. But the it's not about you know, whether we have the money, it's about whether we have the will. And right now we don't, but we're working to build it.
2: Yeah, that's great. And one possibility, I don't know if this would be (laughs) suit you, but, you know, you could just forgive the debt or the interest, you know? And you say, well, okay, right, right. That, you know, you, you should pay it back, but pay it back in the future. If you deserve, if you eliminate the interest, you probably eliminated half the debt. I don't, I think your experience was something like that, right?
3: The thing that's so complicated is the Department of Education wouldn't be able to likely cancel the interest separate from the principal, if they could, because of interest capitalization and, and other forms where the interest has actually added on to the principal because people missed payments and were essentially punished for not being able to pay. So we have people paying interest on interest. So the, we actually wouldn't be able to sort of separate interest from the principal, it would just get too clunky, the Department of Education doesn't have all of that data. And so we've sort of gone through all of these piecemeal approaches of can we cancel student debt for people who paid for 20 years? What about folks who did public service loan forgiveness for 120 months or 10 years? What about people who maybe went to a closed school, have a closed school discharge? And We've tried to means test all of these ways to cancel debt and to make it a little bit more um, acceptable for people. But all of those programs fail uh, every time by design. So that's why we're saying just cancel it all.
2: Yeah. And what about for uh, private student debt? Did, is Can you do that or is there pushback on that? I guess you you have gotten the moratorium on on private debt. Is that correct?
3: no no private oh, loans. Mm. there's no moratorium for private student loans uh, and
2: okay
3: and also for fell loans those are the certain types of loans that existed before the federal government took over the lending service those loans which are public uh, loans aren't included in the moratorium either so another point of criticism for the Biden administration is there that their student loan moratorium as it isn't actually any more know, progressive than the Trump administration. They're sort of just extending a Trump era policy. So we could go much, there's lots of in-betweens between full student debt cancellation and a Trump era policy. And so far the Biden administration hasn't done too much.
2: Yeah, Um, and I saw on your website that this is what I actually meant to ask earlier, but I don't think you understood my question, but that, like if people want individually, help you do have like forms they can fill out different sorts of legal action they could take I guess or can you I mean what would you say to people that have a problem with any kind of debt and they came to you
3: oh I misunderstood that oh absolutely (laughs) at debtcollective.org there are a few tools available to you to sort of help your situation so particularly with student debt there's a lot of folks who are eligible to be what we actually call a debt striker. We orchestrated the first student debt strike a few years ago called the Corinthian 15. Our current debt strike is actually the definition is paying $0 a month. Right. And so you don't, you can actually do that in some very safe ways. So you go to debtcollective.org. For people who have student debt, you'll see options to enroll in an income-driven repayment program or file for a waiver to have your debt canceled if, you, if it applies to you for public service loan forgiveness. We also have debt dispute tools. So we, have, we help folks with credit card debt and other predatory types of debt to be able to help that debt get canceled. The same with medical debt, right? A lot of hospitals are actually nonprofits. They have to abide by charity care programs. And they actually are not supposed to be hounding people to pay back certain medical debt if they have a certain amount of income. And so we help those folks as well. If you go to abolishbaildebt.org, you can find the Debt Collective's tool that we created to help abolish the bail debt specifically for people in California. So we've had thousands of dollars of predatory bail debt actually canceled because we have used the collective power of a union of debtors and some legal power and legal backing behind us to go to these predatory bail bonds companies and say, actually, you're not following the law. Consumer protection law in California says you're supposed to be doing this and you're not doing that. Or you are giving predatory phone calls, you're knocking on people's door, things that they're not supposed to be doing. We've had thousands of dollars of, tens of thousands of dollars of bail debt canceled through the abolish bail debt tool, which does at, The current moment only apply to folks in California. So there's a lot of tools available. We're working on some housing tools that will work across the nation as people are getting evicted. So it's not just student loan debt. It's all types of services that are available to you. And that's the purpose of a debtor's union. It's to push for debt abolition, but it's also in a variety of ways, but it's also to sort of transform the economy and how people can sort of think about who owes what to whom.
2: Oh, that's great. And I'm sort of I'm fascinated by this idea that you can buy up debt for pennies on the dollar. Now obviously individuals can't do that. Uh, I mean I assume it, who is that who does it and who's selling it. I I just wonder. I mean we're always trying to figure out obviously we need a debt jubilee. I mean it's just the nature of the boom and bust cycles that you going, well, uh, Michael Hudson's written about this, they're going all the way back to the Sumerians, you know, and the Babylonians, that the the kings figured out that they could, they needed the workers to work, and they didn't want them to be in debtors' prison, so they said, you know, everybody go back to, go back to your plots of land, it's a level playing field, we're back to zero, we're going to start all over again, but we can't do that now because the debts are private, and You know, you're going to run into all kinds of legal legal issues, like the banks will go bankrupt or whatever. So, um, what is your rolling jubilee program?
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. Debt cancellation has been around as long as debt has. It's it's quite biblical, actually, to you know have a jubilee and to erase these debts. I think we tried to conjure that sort of um, feelings at our action just a couple of days ago. So the Rolling Jubilee is actually a sort of a sister organization of the debt collective. We work in tandem. We're sort of similar, sort of different legal entities, but it's all basically the same in which we, again, purchase debts on the secondary market. It's very shady. We can't sort of pinpoint, you know, I, I, I can't buy Ellen's debt. I can't search medical debt and just sort of click around and find who I want to. It's actually, it's a really shady market of this sort of stereotypical person in the basement who's profiting off of people's pain and sort of this incredibly lucrative industry. And a lot of folks actually don't want to sell their debt to the debt collective because they know that we're actually challenging their industry and their ideology. So it's actually can be sometimes difficult to purchase debt. We don't actually want to... Um, You know, we, we started the Rolling Jubilee in 2012. We put it in hibernation in 2015. We've since revived it in 2020 due to the wake of the pandemic. The reason why we put it in hibernation is because the purchasing and erasing of debts isn't completely sustainable, right? Those are debts that are already in collection. And we don't want to just hand over money to this predatory industry when we should work to eliminate it from the root. So that's why we're we're canceling debt in an act of solidarity. There's real people that need help and that we are able to extend help to in a form of solidarity. But that's not all that, you know, we do. And that's that's not going to be the solution, right? We don't want people to go into debt in the first place. So that's a little bit about how the debt buying works. And we've been able to use it to help thousands of people across the United States, but there's simply too much debt to buy. And also we shouldn't be the sole people doing this. The federal government should be doing it. The federal government could erase medical debt right now if they were to just enforce some of the laws that are already on the books. So it shouldn't be up to the debt collective, a group of Occupy Wall Street activists who just (laughs) care about people to, you know, to uh, administer a Jubilee across the country, which is why we're pairing our debt cancellation work with our fight against the federal government or whoever the creditor of a particular debt may be to sort of eliminate it from the root and make sure this doesn't happen again.
2: Yeah, that's great. And I've seen you've gotten pushback on, well, the, the, uh, the pandemic is over and so now people can go back to work and so they should be able to pay their student debt. But that absolutely is not true. I mean, right now things are probably worse in many ways than they were maybe a year ago because you've got interest rates are going up, and two hundred thousand businesses closed down during twenty just in twenty twenty alone, and they're not back on their feet necessarily. Um, so anyway, <laughs> trying to mention it.
3: Yeah, people are still struggling from the pandemic, which exacerbated so many other crises that were already existing like racism and wage gaps and all of these other inequities. But it's important to remember student debt was a crisis before the pandemic. We were pushing for student debt cancellation literally a decade ago mm-hmm. in 2012, when we marched on one T day, when student debt hit $1 trillion and it was burdening communities and families back then. So one, we're still definitely in a pandemic. And I think our, maybe experiencing or cautiously awaiting another surge, depending on whenever another variant comes through. But despite that sort of feeling of maybe folks are vaccinated and things are feeling a bit safer, that doesn't change where the crisis was before the pandemic which was people having their social security checks garnished people having their licenses taken and people suffering all types of consequences because they went into default and the sort of crushing mental aspects where people are selling their willing to sell their belongings or hurt themselves or take their own lives because of the mental aspect of being in debt which we know was, started as a a tool of oppression meant to, you know, hold back Native Americans and we go back towards biblical times where it was used as a means of dispossession of land and all these other sorts of forms of social control. So, you know, this precedes, um, this predates COVID, but COVID, COVID has definitely made things worse.
2: Okay, great. Well, it's been great talking to you, Brixton. Um, so, and your website is debtcollective.com uh, or.org?
3: Debtcollective.org.
2: Org. Okay. It's great talking to you. I've been speaking with Braxton Brewington, uh, press secretary of the Debt Collective, at, which is at debtcollective.org. Thank you very much.
3: So glad to be here. Thanks.
0: Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting ellenbrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown.